Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This episode, I'm going to be starting the study guides on individual romantic writers, starting with the life, times, and works of William Blake. For the romantics, I'm going to be organizing each episode into a biography section, and then once the biography is done, discussing the writer's literature in more detail. Hooray for being an ex-English major. William Blake was a poet, artist, and literally visionary for the British romantics. He's a weird dude, but his focus on being true to himself, exploring the imagination, and refusal to follow traditional institutions really makes him the first British romantic, in my opinion. He probably didn't come up all that often in either history or English class, thanks to his odd political and religious beliefs, but you almost certainly have read or heard the opening lines of his poem, The Tiger. William Blake's study guide has some extreme visions, role play, and of course, tigers. Let's begin. William Blake is born November 28th, 1757, in the St. James neighborhood of London. His parents are James Blake and Catherine Armitage. James Blake is a hosier, draper, haberdasher, while Catherine Armitage is a widow whose first husband before James Blake had also owned a haberdashery shop. She ends up marrying James Blake in 1752, and the two will have six children together, five of whom will survive past infancy, which is a very good track record in the mid-1700s. Growing up, William is going to be closest to his younger brother, Robert Blake. The Blake family is solidly middle class by the 1700s hundreds standards. They're always going to be right on the edge of dipping into poverty, but that never quite happens. Quite literally, William Blake is going to grow up between a local poorhouse in the very wealthy Golden Square neighborhood in St. James. I think the physical location of William Blake's childhood really emphasizes the liminal state that his family is occupying. The Blake family, in addition to their interesting economic position, also are in an interesting religious position. Both of his parents are dissenters. We don't know exactly what dissenting sect James Blake and Catherine Armitage belong to, but they did not attend traditional Church of England services. We know that they identified as enthusiastics, which meant that they really believed that individuals should read the Bible in private and not just rely on what a educated preacher told the flock to believe. In the Blake household, there was a large focus on individual belief and the idea of looking at spiritual meaning as well as literal meaning when it came to understanding the Bible. All of these religious ideas are going to have a huge impact on both William Blake's later ideology 
and his later work. As a child, William Blake is going to start having visions. He has his first vision at the age of four, when he apparently sees God standing outside one of the windows of the family home. Being a normal child, he immediately tells his parents, and the Blake parents are not thrilled that their young son is seeing things that aren't there, because in the 1700s, that tends to be frowned upon. James and Catherine beat young William whenever he tells them about the visions of prophets and angels that he's having. But that doesn't stop William Blake. He's going to continue to have these visions for the rest of his life, and they tend to be fairly detailed. This, of course, lends the question, did William Blake have some sort of a mental illness like schizophrenia that might have been responsible for these visions? Obviously, it's hard to tell. I try to avoid diagnosing people after the fact. I'm obviously not an expert in psychology. I simply minored in it in college. I think, I mean, like it's so hard to know. William Blake did not get along well with others. I think by modern standards, he probably would be diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, but that doesn't really matter for today's podcast. As a child, William Blake is not going to have the most standardized education. He does learn how to read, and apparently he loves reading, especially works by John Milton, William Shakespeare, and other English poets. But he leaves school at a pretty early age. This makes sense. He comes from a fairly large middle-class family. The children need to be used to work in the family haberdashery shop. They can't afford to send all the children to school. That being said, from a very early age, William Blake shows immense talent as an artist. He's so clearly talented that at the age of 10, his father sends him to a local drawing school, even though that is more expensive than having William Blake stay and work at the family shop. William excels at this drawing school. He gets invited to sketch with some members of the Royal Academy, which is a big deal. To be a member of the Royal Academy, you have to be, one, invited, and two, either very well-connected or a very talented artist or both. And these members of the Royal Academy are asking William Blake, who's only a teenager, to hang out with them and draw with them. It's becoming pretty clear to everyone in the family that William Blake's fate is going to be something beyond just working in the family shop. Even if his father wanted him to work in the family shop, it wasn't like William was much good at it. He was awful at math, and instead of ringing up people's bills, he preferred to doodle in the margins. So, when William is 14, his father gets him a job as an apprentice to an engraver. William Blake is not thrilled about this. He doesn't want to work in engraving. Instead, he wants to apprentice for a proper painter who is making original compositions, not some engraver who's just copying what already came before. But 
being an apprentice to an engraver has a lower entry fee than working for a painter. And maybe more importantly, engravers tend to have a more steady income, even if they don't have as good of a reputation within the artistic community. William Blake's father sets up an apprenticeship with a man named Mr. Ryland, who's a fairly well-regarded engraver. But William Blake refuses to work for Mr. Ryland. He says that he doesn't like the look of Ryland's face and that he has the sense that someday Ryland is going to be hanged. And it turns out this vision of William Blake's is correct. A decade after he turns down the job with Ryland, Ryland is found guilty of forgery and is executed. Good job, William Blake. Instead, William Blake gets a job working for this guy, James Bazier, who's an engraver for the Society of Antiquary, the Society of Antiquaries. James Bazier teaches William Blake all the new printmaking and engraving techniques and As usual, when it comes to art, William Blake does a pretty good job. He is known for being so talented that he gets invited to draw the newly opened tombs at Westminster Abbey. That's a big fucking deal for an apprentice because not just anyone is being invited to draw said tombs. While he's working through his apprenticeship, William Blake continues to practice and study painting on the side. In 1779, when he's about 21 years old, William completes his apprenticeship and leaves his job with James James Bezier. He applies to and gets accepted to study at the Royal Academy, which, like I've established, is a big deal. And he will continue studying at the Academy until about 1785. In the six years that he's at the Academy, he will have seven paintings accepted in to Academy exhibitions, which is a pretty good track record. However, he will not win any prizes or scholarships during his time at the Academy. He has a pretty bad working relationship with various Academy instructors, as well as the president of the Academy, Sir Joshua Reynolds, over his ideas of art. At the time period, the classical style is all the rage, but William Blake refuses to paint in that style. He's only going to paint in the Gothic style. And furthermore, he refuses to paint in oils. He just doesn't like them, and he's nothing but stubborn, so he won't do it. He also is mocked by some more established artists at the Academy because he had previously worked as an engraver. This is a reputation he's never going to be able to shake. So while William Blake does have the success of having some of his works displayed, the Royal Academy does not help him out commercially. That being said, William Blake is going to establish three really great friendships during his time with the Academy. During his time at the Academy, he's going to meet three young, politically radical artists, all of whom he's going to collaborate with or get commissions from for quite a bit of his life. These artists are John Flaxman, Thomas Dodhard, and George Cumberland. While Blake is at the Academy, he starts getting involved in political movements in England for the first time. In 1780, this thing, the Gordon Riots, break out. 
Basically, in 1778, Parliament had granted some very limited new rights to Catholics, and this was unpopular. A Protestant lord, Lord George Gordon, is extremely pissed off and organizes a bunch of mobs to protest this new law. Surprise, surprise, the protesting mobs get out of hand because protesting mobs always get out of hand, and the mobs end up burning churches and houses throughout London in 1780. Blake witnessed these riots. He may have been somewhat involved in them. Either way, the riots super inspire the young William Blake. He's seeing this political movement turn violent and almost apocalyptic. The idea of politics turning into something like the apocalypse is going to inspire some of his later works. But more about that later on. The next year, after the Gordon Riots in 1781, he meets and falls in love at first sight with a woman named Catherine Butcher, who is the daughter of a local gardener. The two get married in August 1782 when William is 24 and Catherine is 20. They have a very good, very long-lasting relationship. Yes, Catherine doesn't know how to read, but she is able to help William Blake out with his various art endeavors and does a good job of keeping the house neat and being a good, strong, practical housewife. Even though they have a pretty solid relationship, William Blake does have some interesting ideas about relationships. He believes in free love and thought that wives should be shared in common, but there's no evidence that he was ever unfaithful to Catherine. In fact, the two apparently like to roleplay as Adam and Eve from the Bible, which you go, William Blake. Enjoy your kinky, kinky sex life. Despite this exciting, spicy relationship, William and Catherine never had any children, and we don't know why that is. Around the time that William gets married, he needs a job. He has a family to support. He needs to start making that money. And he goes back to his previous job and starts working as an engraver. And the connections he made at the Royal Academy are really going to help him. His friend Flaxman enjoys introduces him to this preacher who has all of these political and literary connections, Henry Matthew. Henry Matthew convinces Blake to publish some of his work, and William Blake does. This first collection of work is called Political Sketches, and it's super well-reviewed. The only issue is Political Sketches doesn't sell that well. In fact, after Blake dies, it turns out he still had unsold copies of political sketches in his possession. Blake is kind of annoyed by this and sort of stops hanging out with Henry Matthew. Instead, he befriends a super radical publisher, Joseph Johnson, who's also pals with people like Thomas Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft, and a Swiss painter, Henry Fuseli. Henry Fuseli and William Blake are going to be total BFFs, to the point that William Blake literally writes their name in a heart like they're seventh grade girls. Not that there's anything wrong with being a seventh grade girl. I was one once. 
William Blake is going to be totally inspired by Henry Fuseli's engraving style and painting style. And in exchange, Henry Fuseli is going to help out Blake by getting him all sorts of fun commissions. A few years later, in 1784, William Blake's father is going to die, and he's going to leave some money to William Blake. Blake's going to take this money and start up a print-selling business. This print-selling business is going to be Blake's main source of income until the mid-1790s. At the get-go, this print-selling business is mostly going to be focused on engraving already existing works. There's not going to be a whole lot of original composition coming out of it. The next year in 1785, William Blake is going to move him and his wife down the street right next to the printmaking business and his little brother and BFF Robert is going to move in with Blake and Catherine. Tragically, Robert is pretty sickly. Yes, he's working in the print shop, he is somewhat talented as an artist, but he gets sick, and he ends up dying in February 1787. Robert's death has a major impact on William Blake, who is completely heartbroken. After all, he's just lost his best friend. After Robert's death, William Blake is going to become much more religious, more on that, in a second, but more importantly, he's going to have a vision where Robert comes back from the dead and teaches him how to engrave more efficiently. This vision is going to totally change William Blake's career. He starts using a new version of relief etching, which means that he can create words and images at the same time on the same sheet of metal for much cheaper and much quicker than he could have before with pre-existing techniques. And I'm not really going to get into the nitty-gritty of how to make etchings because this is not the podcast for it. Basically, the way this new system of etching works means that each copy that William Blake makes is completely unique, which is really cool. If you have a William Blake original, that means no one else has the same copy as you. It takes William Blake a while to figure out this new technique. After all, it's brand new. No one else is using it. But by about 1789, he has figured it out and he is going to be using it in quite a bit of his work. But let's take a quick break from talking about William Blake's work and quickly chat about his religious beliefs because that is going to be important as we delve into some of his works. Basically, William Blake's ideas around religion are super complicated and could be a podcast subject all on their own. Basically, he's inspired by a ton of different ideas. Remember, as a good romantic, William Blake doesn't love the idea of a single established religion. Some of the big sources of inspiration in his ideology are going to be things like his background as a religious dissenter, Gnosticism, and the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, although he will eventually turn on Swedenborg. So yeah, that is Blake's religious beliefs. It's much more complicated than that. And going into it will just make this podcast very long and very confusing. And I don't want to do that to any of my dear listeners. Like I said earlier, by 1789, William Blake has figured out this new relief etching technique. And he's going to start using it to create 
some original works and illustrations of his own. The first major one of these is called The Book of Tell, which he works on between 1788 and 1790. The Book of Tell is longer than political sketches. It's the first time William Blake is sort of creating his own mythical canon, and it's the first time he uses original illustrations in his writing. Only 16 copies of the Book of Tell exist in 2019. Around the same time that he's working on the Book of Tell, he also starts working on a collection called Songs of Innocence. Songs of Innocence is a collection of poems. These poems are a little bit more commercial than Tell. They're more aimed at children and they're supposed to like teach children various things that being said some of the poems tend to be darker and more critical of society such as the chimney sweeper in 1790 the blake family leaves london for the suburb of lambeth their new home in lambeth is very exciting it has a garden william blake loves this. He feels like the entire Lambeth area is more spiritual than London. While he and Catherine are in Lambeth, they briefly hire a servant, but William Blake decides that he doesn't need a servant. He can just have his wife do all the cooking and cleaning and housekeeping, because welcome to being a woman in the 1790s, bitches. During the time in Lambeth, William Blake is mostly going to be focused on commercial engraving and making a living based on commissions. Most of his commissions are going to be bought by Fuseli and Johnson. For example, Fuseli asks Blake to make a whole series of engravings based on the works of John Milton. However, the project never quite takes off but he does do a fairly successful series of engravings based on the works of Erasmus based on the works of Erasmus Darwin. So this time period of the very early 1790s is going decently well for the Blake family. He does have like a slight falling out with the works of Swedenborg. He's going to start criticizing him a little bit more in this one piece, The Works of Heaven and Hell. This is one of the really early pieces where William Blake starts exploring the idea of prophecy in his writing, and it's sort of the last truly optimistic piece of writing by William Blake. Around the same time that he's working on The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, William Blake starts writing a sort of sequel to the Songs of Innocence, the Songs of Experience. Initially, Songs of Experience are supposed to just be straight satires of the poems in Songs of Innocence, but as he keeps working on the project, it becomes a little bit more complicated. They're no longer just satires, but more responses and critiques from a physical perspective, the relationship between Songs of Experience and Songs of Innocence is really interesting because he literally etches Songs of Experience onto the back of Songs of Innocence. As the 1790s continue, Blake isn't just focusing on his writing and his life in Lambeth. Oh no, we have the French Revolution going on, and William Blake is a well-educated, well-read man. He's paying attention to what's going on in France. He is definitely sympathetic 
towards the French Revolution. He thinks that monarchy is inherently wrong. That being said, he doesn't necessarily like leading pro-revolutionary English thinkers of the day like Thomas Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft because of how anti-religious they are. He also doesn't like when the Jacobins go on their whole cult of supreme being kick with Robespierre, but at the beginning he is optimistic about the French Revolution. And because of this interest and optimism in the French Revolution, during the 1790s his work is going to become more and more political in a more and more radical sense. While William Blake's work is pretty political, I do think it is important to note that he almost certainly never voted. I wasn't able to figure out if that's because he didn't meet the property requirement, which was pretty high in the 1790s, or if it was because he just didn't care. In the early 1790s, he starts working on a poem called The French Revolution, which surprise, surprise, is about the French Revolution. Initially, Blake wants this poem to be seven books long, but only the first book survives slash is completed. The French Revolution poem is super radical and shocking. This poem marks the beginning of the end of Blake as a truly commercial writer. He starts isolating himself from public opinion. People aren't really sure what to think about him, and he is never really going to return to the commercial consciousness in his lifetime. After giving up on the French Revolution poem, he's going to work on this piece called America, a prophecy, which is on the surface about the American Revolution, but it isn't really. He sort of casts the American Revolution as this epic battle between a George Washington-esque figure and the guardian prince of Albion. Apparently, he's really inspired by those Gordian riots that he saw during his time as a student while he was writing and illustrating America, a prophecy. While the work does eventually get completed, it definitely does not sell at all. Next, in 1794, he starts working on his first serious series of prophecies. Basically, these prophecies are Blake's attempt to rewrite the Bible with his own visions in religious ideologies and biblical mythological characters. The first three books of these prophecies are the Book of Los, the Book of Urzan, and the Book of Ahania, which are basically Blake's response to Genesis and Exodus from the Bible. They are pretty weird. And from here on out, Blake's writing is going to get really weird. He's going to be making up characters and mythology and ignoring conventions of plot and character. Because of this whole prophecy thing that he's working on, Blake starts getting a bit of a reputation and fewer and fewer people want to work with him because they're like, eh, he might be crazy. But at the same time, his friends start doing really, really well. They're taking off commercially, which means that if Blake wants work, if he wants to make money to feed him and his wife, he has to start relying on friends like Flaxman and Fusilli and Johnson. And William Blake doesn't exactly enjoy that. 
He also, around the time of the prophecies, starts working on Europe, a prophecy, which does contain a poem, but is most famous for its images, specifically this image of a man striking down a sun. You have seen this image. You just don't know it. And since it's kind of hard to describe via podcast, I will be posting it on the website and in the Instagram. William Blake continues working. He's not getting good reviews. He's not selling well at all. So he does briefly start returning to more conventional techniques. He goes back to making etchings for other people, but most of the jobs he gets hired to do never get completed, either because of the epic scope of these jobs, because William Blake has to do everything on an epic scale, or because of poor sales and reviews. Things are not going well. In the late 1790s, Blake attempts a small revival, which mostly fails. He does have two paintings accepted into the Royal Academy exhibition in 1790 and 1800, which is super exciting for raising his profile, but he is never given membership into the Royal Academy in his lifetime, and mainstream artists continue to mock both his technique and his ideology. In 1800, though, we do see a small shift in fortune for William Blake. There's this poet, William Haley, who's doing pretty well commercially, even though his poems aren't necessarily, like, the greatest. William Haley has an illegitimate son, and his illegitimate kid is dying. Haley had read some of Blake's political sketches and had enjoyed them, and is friends with Blake's old friend, Flaxman. He ends up commissioning a engraving of his dying illegitimate son and really likes this engraving. So Haley and Blake become friends. He even helps Blake move out of London to the suburb of Felpham so that the two can be closer and work more closely together. Blake spends the next few years making engravings for Haley's poems and doing some writing on his own. But pretty quickly, the two start having a rough relationship. By 1802, the tensions between Blake and Haley are impossible to resolve. Haley realizes that Blake maybe isn't the best business partner, and Blake is convinced that Haley is gay and wants nothing to do with him, because as it turns out, William Blake might have been a wee homophobe. Also, the countryside isn't good for either Catherine or William's health. They keep getting sick. And by 1803, William Blake decides to move the family back to London. Even though his time in Felpham didn't last all that long and maybe wasn't super successful, it had a huge impact on William Blake. For the first time in a long time, he had steady employment and work. He and Catherine no longer had to worry about making ends meet. It's also during his time at Felpham that William Blake really returns to the works of John Milton and really starts thinking about John Milton. He starts writing more epic poems, the first of which is going to be this poem called Vala 
for Zoas in 1802, where William Blake is really going to embrace the language of prophecy in his poetry. As the Blakes prepare to leave Felpham, they have one last little piece of drama because things can't all be fun and rainbows. In August 1803, William Blake gets into a fight with a soldier, John Schofield, when John refuses to leave Blake's front yard. Schofield claims that Blake had damned the King of England and said various treasonous things, like that he and Catherine supported Napoleon over England. William Blake, however, says he had just asked John Schofield to leave the yard, and Schofield was extremely rude. There are no witnesses to this argument, but William Blake is known for being very anti-monarchy, so the case goes to court. William Blake pleads not guilty and eventually is acquitted of all charges, but the entire process is very, very stressful to William Blake, and as soon as the court case is resolved, he and Catherine move back to London. Once William Blake is back in London, things continue to not go so well. Turns out there's not that much work out there for him. He really is relying on this one patron, Thomas Butts, for work. 1804 and 1805 is really a low point for William Blake. While people are hiring him to come up with designs, they're actually using other engravers to engrave the designs, which is a real slap in the face. However, at the end of 1804, Blake has a bit of an epiphany while he's at the Trukesian Gallery, and in this epiphany, he decides that he needs to take a break from engraving and go back to painting and watercolors and start experimenting with the epic form. And that's what he does. In 1804, he starts working on his epic poem, Milton, which, surprise, surprise, is all about the poet John Milton and explores what it is to be a poet. The start of Milton includes some of William Blake's most famous writing. The opening lines of Milton are the words to the hymn Jerusalem, which are, And did these feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? Blake is going to be working on Milton on and off between 1804 and 1810. In 1804, he also starts working on his longest, last, and most ambitious piece of writing, Jerusalem, although he doesn't really start working on it full-time until 1807. Jerusalem is also this epic prophecy poem thing. In Jerusalem, he uses his original mythology to explore the fall and redemption of humanity. He doesn't complete Jerusalem until 1820. By 1810, William Blake is falling pretty badly into poverty. He's lost and alienated most of the people who had given him commissions or work earlier on in his career. Between 1800 and 1810, only two of his pieces, both of which had been more traditional watercolors, get accepted for display by the Royal Academy. When he does manage to get work, it tends to be doing really basic engravings for catalogs. It's pretty embarrassing for William Blake. But then, in 1818, everything changes. 
he meets this artist, John Linnell. And John Linnell absolutely loves William Blake. Linnell is part of this movement known as the Ancients, who are sort of these hipster artists who feel like ancient times were so superior to the present day. They want to return to the past, and they enjoy doing things like walking through nature and reciting Latin poetry, both of which sound really gross, in my opinion. John Linnell and the Ancients see William Blake as a sage and a genius. They call him Michael Angelo Blake, which obviously William Blake is into. And they're going to commission works from him. And John Linnell does more than just commission work from William Blake. He's also going to reintroduce William Blake into contemporary artistic society. It's through John Linnell that William Blake is going to meet people like Caroline Lamb and John Constable and other movers and shakers of England artistic life. In 1823, John Linnell commissions a set of engravings from William Blake that are supposed to be based on the Book of Job and are based on previous watercolors that Blake had done. Blake ends up finishing these engravings in 1825, and the engravings are a critical and commercial success. It's basically William Blake's first success in his life. These engravings of the Book of Job are seen as his masterpiece in his lifetime. But by the time he's done with these engravings, he's pretty sick. While he's mentally there, or at least as mentally there as William Blake ever was, he's suffering from a series of pretty bad chest infections. William Blake ends up dying on August 12th, 1827 in London, England. His cause of death was either a gallbladder infection or poisoning from the nitric acid that he used in his etching. At the time of his death, William Blake was still working. He was working on a series of illustrations for Dante's Divine Comedy, while William Blake thought that Dante was a godless atheist, which, eh, questionable, he did enjoy working on these illustrations for the Divine Comedy. So, that is William Blake's life. Let's do a quick little recap, as I always do. William Blake is born to a pretty solidly middle-class family in the 1700s in England. From an early age, it turns out he is really good at art. So, his father enrolls him in drawing school and then gets him a job with an engraver. William Blake goes on to work at the Royal Academy. He makes some great connections, but his stubbornness and refusal to embrace popular trends mean he's never really going to hit commercial success. After leaving the Royal Academy and marrying Catherine Butcher, he opens up his own print shop. He works with his younger brother, Robert, who also is his best friend. Tragically for Blake, though, Robert ends up dying in 1787. While this is super sad for Blake, he does have a vision of the then, the the then dead Robert, which inspires him to try out a new style of etching, which he will use for the rest of his life in his work.
William Blake begins doing some serious writing and illustration. Most of his writing is not exactly going to be commercial. It tends to be these weird religious prophecies with his own figures and ideology. For most of his career, William Blake is just going to manage not dying of poverty. His friends are going to be his main source of income. They're going to serve as patrons and commission work from him. Because like I said, William Blake doesn't exactly appeal to the masses. He gets a big win in 1818 when he befriends artist John Linnell, who starts commissioning a ton of work from him, the most famous of which is The Book of Job, which is Blake's masterpiece in his lifetime. William Blake ends up dying in August 1827. So let's talk a little bit about William Blake's work in more detail, looking at some of the big trends. I'm going to start by talking about William Blake's work as an artist. Like I mentioned earlier, I am going to be posting images of his art on the website and the Instagram. It is kind of tricky to discuss his art in podcast form when you can't see any of it, but I'm going to do the best that I can. William Blake started painting as a toddler, and it seems like he had a natural and born talent for art. Most of his early works during his time as an apprentice and at the Royal Academy tended to focus on history, specifically Gothic and medieval history. Even when he was sort of trying to appeal to market tastes, he's still going to be leaning much more in that gothic direction. And starting in his early art, there's this focus on light and how to capture light in this emotional way, even if it isn't necessarily a realistic way. And this focus on light in William Blake's work really reminds me of the later work of J.W. Turner. Even though the two are very different in both style and content, both of them use light in really interesting ways in their work. William Blake's goal is to combine engraved illustrations with text. The two main methods at the time are super complicated and time intensive, but thanks to that vision of his dead brother, William Blake comes up with a new technique, which basically involves engraving straight onto copper in a relief style, which allows him to make these engravings very quickly and very cheaply. By about 1793-1794, with his poem America, images are going to be just as important, if not more important, as the text in William Blake's original work. By around the same time, he's also going to start exploring color printing. He would put the color straight onto his plates, which would create this really interesting mass of color. But William Blake isn't just doing these engraved plates. He's also going to work on watercolor, and in his lifetime, his watercolors do tend to be better received by the public than his engravings. Overall, a lot of his works do focus very deeply on religion. That shouldn't be a surprise. And some common themes across his work is going to be interesting stuff with light. And in his engravings, we're going to see these really striking deep lines that can be incredibly detailed. 
Also, William Blake isn't going to be that focused on realism in his paintings, but you still are going to get these intense, dark works of emotion that are just so amazing. I'm really excited to show some of them to you. So that's William Blake as an artist. Let's talk about William Blake as a writer. William Blake starts writing poems around the age of 11. Most of his early poems are pretty par for the course. For a teenage poet, there's a lot of stuff about blood and thunder and sex. You know, it's super exciting. Across his poems, even when they differ in terms of content, William Blake is going to tend to use a seven-beat line in his writing, and he's also going to ignore conventions around grammar, plot, and characters, which is super fun and, and which definitely doesn't make his work tricky to read. So let's talk about in a little bit more detail some of his specific pieces of writing. So first up, we have some of his early writings like Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. Like I mentioned earlier on the podcast, these two can be seen as almost a joint collection. The poems and songs tend to be more traditional. A lot of them are still used in anthologies today, like The Tiger and The Chimney Sweep. A lot of the poems in Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience are used to critique modern society and discuss the importance of religion. Around the same time that Blake is working on songs, he also is working on The Book of Thel, which is the first major piece he does that's sort of discussing his prophecies and his religious ideas. It's the first time we start to see some of William Blake's interesting original characters, and while it is full of some weird analogies, it's much shorter and much more simple than some of his later prophetic works. Next up, we have the Continental Prophecies, which are written during William Blake's times at Lambeth. As a result of this, they're also sometimes called the Lambeth Prophecies. These include America Prophecy, Europe Prophecy, and the Song of Loss. All of these prophecies tell a larger story, including that involve Blake's original characters and explore the relationship between the apocalypse, society, liberty, and revolution. As a fun side note, in the Song of Loss, William Blake begins doing satires of various Enlightenment thinkers like Isaac Newton and John Locke, which goes back to that idea of the conflict between the Romantics and the Enlightenment. Next, we have Blake's first serious epic prophecy poem, Vala or the Four Zoas. He never finished this particular poem. The first time it's published, it gets published by W.B. Yeats, which is cool, and Vala or the Four Zoas is the first time that William Blake combines biblical and epic language into this like one overarching prophetic language. Lastly, we have William Blake's two longest, most epic, most ambitious poems, Milton and Jerusalem. Milton, surprise, surprise, is all about John Milton, who William Blake had read and admired from childhood. In Milton, John Milton and the figure of William Blake meet and go on a journey so that 
John Milton can learn from his spiritual mistakes and reach salvation. It's all very exciting, and once again, William Blake uses the poem as an opportunity to discuss his various ideologies. And finally, we have Jerusalem. Jerusalem is meant to tell the story of the fall of Britain and modern man via a whole lot of analogy and all of the mythic characters that Blake had invented in his earlier works. However, in Jerusalem, William Blake refuses to use a linear plot structure and he will have characters change name and identity in the middle of sections, which is a fun postmodern concept. I've only read sections of Jerusalem, and let me tell you, it is super confusing. If you really want to understand Jerusalem, I would suggest going to grad school and becoming a Blake scholar. Have fun with that. So the big themes in William Blake's writing are this new prophetic language that combines biblical and epic language in a way that had never been seen before, a complete ignoring of traditional concepts of plot and characters, and a use of dichotomy to create interesting tensions. It really shouldn't be a surprise that William Blake wasn't exactly a bestseller in his lifetime, or really any lifetime. So I'm going to end this episode by reading one of William Blake's poems. I'm going to end each episode on the different poets by reading a poem of theirs that's either really famous or that I like. For William Blake, I'm going to be reading probably his most famous poem, The Tiger, which was published in 1794 as part of Songs of Experience. Here we go. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What a mortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer and what the chain? And what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread clasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears And watered heaven with their tears, Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright In the forests of the night, What a mortal hand or eye! Dare frame thy fearful symmetry. So, that's The Tiger by William Blake. Is it just about a tiger? Or is it about something larger and more mystical? You can let me know what you think about The Tiger and William Blake on social media. As always, there's the Twitter, at SadGirlStudyPod. There's the Instagram, where I post the dankest of memes, and we'll also be posting images of William Blake's art at Sad Girl Study. There's the website with some truly excellent graphic design, www.sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast financially, you can join the Patreon at 
patreon.com slash sadgirlstudyguides. At $5 a month or more, you get access to bi-monthly tangent casts. The next tangent cast is going to be all about Scottish romantic poet Robert Burns. It's super exciting. I don't do a Scottish accent. Sorry. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is by subscribing and telling a friend. The podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read and review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.